we are here this morning because... How would you finish that sentence? I'm here this morning because fill in the blank. I'm here this morning because my alarm went off. And I got out of bed, too. I'm, I'm here this morning because I had my morning cup of coffee. And the second one, too. I'm, I'm here this morning because a friend invited me. I'm here this morning because the church doors were open and I was really curious about what was going on inside. I'm here this morning because it's what Christians are supposed to do. Christians are supposed to go to church on Sunday. I am here this morning because I wanted to see my friends. I'm here this morning because I'm lonely, because I need help, because I feel lost and rudderless in this world. I'm here this morning because I love the Lord Jesus Christ and I want to worship Him. All of these are good reasons, and yet there is an even more fundamental reason for our presence here this morning. There is a first and foremost a fundamental reason for us being gathered here this morning, and that fundamental reason is based upon a fundamental reality. We are here this morning because God exists. And we know that He exists because He has spoken. We are here this morning because God has spoken, and He has spoken because He exists. And what has God said? He has said, let there be light, let there be water, let there be earth and land, let there be sun and moon and shining stars. He said, let the waters swarm with creatures, let birds fly above the earth, let animals from the land. And he said, let us make man in our image. You and I are here this morning because there is a God who speaks. He has not just given us this world, but he has also given us his word. He has given us the Bible. He has spoken his word because he wants it to be heard. He shows us that he wants to be heard over and over again in the text of the Bible itself. The very first words, the very first man heard from God were directed at him. The very first thing we see Adam doing in the Bible is listening to God. And this shows us that God speaks not only to create but also to relate. The very first step of relating to God is listening to Him. As I said, God wants to be heard and He makes this clear. Throughout the Bible, we see God raising up prophets, godly men who are to speak God's word to God's people. In response, God's people are to listen to Him, to love Him, and to follow His leading. And this morning, we are beginning a new study in the Old Testament book of Amos. And Amos is one of those prophets God raised up to speak His word to His people. Amos' ministry was to call God's people to listen to and to love God and to love His Word. And if you haven't done so already, then let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Amos. We're going to start in chapter 1. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided, you should be able to find the book of Amos beginning on page 764. 764 of the Bibles provided. And if you're not used to using a Bible, you should know that the larger numbers in the text are the chapter numbers, and the smaller numbers in the text are the verse numbers. 
And I'm going to be referring to chapters and verses a lot throughout this sermon. Uh, So for example, uh, this morning, we're specifically setting Amos chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Uh, so that's, those are the verses that we're especially going to be looking at this morning. And since this sermon is a, a sermon at the beginning of a series, this sermon is going to unfold a little bit differently than others that we've heard here in the past few weeks. Because the book of Amos is buried deep within the recesses of the Old Testament, um, we need to take some time to get our bearings straight. Where are we in the Old Testament? What's going on? We'll need to think through who this human author is. We'll need to think through his historical situation, his audience, and his message. And many of those issues all come right up there in the first two verses of the book. So let's just go ahead and read them now. Follow along as I read from Amos chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. In view of these verses in the beginning of our study in the book of Amos, we're going to ask four questions. Consider four questions this morning. First, who is Amos? Who is Amos? Second, who is Amos speaking to? Third, who is Amos speaking for? And fourth, what is Amos saying? Who is Amos? Who is Amos speaking to? Who is Amos speaking for? And what is Amos saying? Let's begin with our first question. Who is Amos? And read Amos chapter 1 verse 1 again. We get a little bit of detail about who he is here in this verse. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and the days of Jeroboam, the son, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now in this verse, we learn something about the man whom this book is named after. And we also learn something about the times in which this man lived. From history, we know that men are shaped by their times, and we know that men shape their times. Amos, as we can see from verse 1, was from Tekoa. Now, Tekoa wasn't a city of great consequence, but it wasn't far from two cities of great consequence. It was about six miles south of Bethlehem and about 12 miles south of Jerusalem. Tekoa was situated in the southern kingdom of Judah in an ideal setting for the line of work that Amos was in. He was a shepherd, as we see here. He was among the shepherds because he was a shepherd. Shepherds in ancient Israel protected and provided for a flock of sheep or goats, and they did so for extended periods of time. They were on duty for 24 hours a day for several days, and they were responsible to protect the sheep from danger, from fending off wild animals and pursuing wayward sheep. At the same time, they had to provide for their sheep. They had to lead them to food and water. And the calling of a shepherd was a noble calling, and it should have been thought well of. After all, the Old Testament would often describe God as the shepherd of His people, Israel. Moses, who virtually all subsequent Israelites looked up to, also served as a shepherd. And the great King David was a shepherd boy. Nevertheless, while the profession of shepherd should have been thought highly of, sometimes sinful men brought the esteem of the profession down. Amos, however, was not one of those men. He was a humble and obedient man. We know this by how he 
further speaks about his work later on in the book. Keeping one finger here, flip over to chapter 7 and take a look at verses 14 and 15. Uh, there you'll see more that Amos tells us more about himself. That's on page 769 of the Bibles provided. What Amos says here comes in the context of him being really dismissed and rejected as a prophet of God. Uh, there Amos writes, Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock. And the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Amos here, in the face of rejection, tells Amaziah that he has been called by God to go and prophesy. This task and calling of speaking God's word to God's people was not Amos' idea, nor was it his family's trade. This was not something that he had been raised to do. He was raised to be a herdsman. He was a shepherd. And apparently he was also a dresser of sycamore figs. Shepherds didn't make a lot of money, so it's no surprise that Amos also had a secondary trade, that of caring, a caretaker for sycamore figs. Amos uh, may not have been high up in the uh, socioeconomic ladder, but he was obedient. He listened to God's word and he did not reject what he had heard. He did not refuse God's call on his life. He, he did not pull a Jonah and run off and run away refused the mission that God had set before him. No, he, he boldly and humbly went where God called him. And he trusted God even in the face of opposition and rejection. Amos's faithful, humble, and obedient example, I think, should challenge us. Will we humbly obey the Word of God? Will we answer Jesus' commands to go and make disciples of all nations? And it's not a matter of whether or not we're qualified to go. When the Lord Jesus Christ called us to faith, He qualified us to go. Do you, do you remember what happened immediately after Jesus met the woman at the well? She went and told others that she had met the Christ. She didn't have a seminary degree or four years of preparation in the local church. She simply told her friends and neighbors to come and meet Jesus. This is a matter of whether or not the Lord has called us to go. And that command is not in doubt. You know, we often, we often get hung up on ourselves when we really shouldn't. We, we think to ourselves, oh, you know, I'm, I'm just not good at words. I don't really have the proper training for this kind of thing, for sharing the gospel with other people. Brothers and sisters, God loves to work through humility and weakness. Amos was not a prophet by trade. He was a shepherd. All day long he spoke to things that could only say ba back to him. You know, that kind of would stunt your social kind of ability to interact. And here he is a shepherd speaking to sheep who respond by saying ba. And now he's got to go and talk to people who will say different words back to him. It would have been a challenge for him. No, what would he say when he actually got to talk to a person? Brothers and sisters, the Lord loves to use people who know they need to depend upon Him. He uses shepherds and fishermen and tax collectors. He will certainly use IT professionals and homemakers and analysts and accountants and administrative assistants and social workers and graphic designers and musicians and writers and linguists and caretakers, nurses, researchers, and more. Who knows, He, he might even surprise us and use lawyers and lobbyists. You know, we... We trust not in ourselves and in our abilities. 
We trust in God. As Thomas Watson said, God can make a straight stroke with a crooked stick. That's what we are. And God knows how to perfectly paint that canvas. We are but instruments in God's all-powerful hands. So we humble ourselves before Him and say with Isaiah, Here am I. Send me. Well, turning back to Amos chapter 1, verse 1, we also learn about the time period in which Amos lived and ministered. This prophetic calling and vision that the Lord gave to Amos concerning Israel occurred in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. This time marker sets Amos' call to, to the ministry, and probably really the entire length of his ministry, to likely somewhere between 765 and 755 B.C., not only has archaeological investigation uh, produced evidence of a major earthquake in that time period, but it also comfortably falls within the overlap of the reigns of Uzziah and Jeroboam. The, the reigns of these two kings should raise questions in the minds of discerning readers. And it certainly should lead us to ask our second question. This is the second question we want to consider together this morning. Who is Amos speaking to? As we think about the answer to the second question, who is Amos speaking to? Read, read verse 1 again with me. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel. In the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now what is clear in, in verse 1, what's clear from verse 1, is that what will follow in this prophetic vision concerns Israel. This prophetic vision which God has given Amos concerns Israel. And here we need to kind of step back and ask ourselves, at this point in biblical history, who is Israel? At this point in biblical history, Israel refers to the, the northern kingdom. But to say that there is a northern kingdom implies that there is probably a kingdom in another direction, perhaps the south. And indeed that's true. There is a kingdom to the south, known as the southern kingdom, also known as Judah. And that is why the, the two kings are mentioned there in verse 1. One from Judah and one from Israel. Amos's ministry while inclusive of the southern kingdom of Judah, is primarily going to be directed at the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, concerning Israel. That's where we see those words there. Um, and, and in the Old Testament, uh, the kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah are often mentioned together. And that, that's because originally they were one kingdom and one people. And here, uh, we need to ask ourselves, how do we get to this point in biblical history of a divided kingdom. How do we get to this one? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, I'm going to take us on a whirlwind tour of biblical history. Br brief whirlwind tour of biblical history. And you might be helped by that timeline that I've provided, uh, I think, on the insert in your bulletin. Um, and I'm not going to cover everything on that timeline, just if you're worried. Um, just the highlights, okay? Uh, our story begins with God speaking the words that created our universe. He created the earth, the sun, the sea, the land, the animals, and called them good. He created the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, and He called them very good. And what's more, He walked alongside Adam in the Garden of Eden. He had placed them in, the garden that He placed them in. He promised them eternal life and fellowship with Him if they would just obey one small rule, not to eat the fruit of one particular tree in this beautiful, expansive garden. In the words of Graham Goldsworthy, they were God's people 
in God's place under God's rule. That's who Adam and Eve were in the garden before the fall. Well, sadly, as I just implied, when Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan, they ate the fruit. And in doing so, Adam and Eve rejected God as their king. They decided that they would not obey His rule. Since God is perfectly holy, Adam and Eve, now marred by sin, could no longer remain in God's garden kingdom. God removed them from the garden, but not without first promising them that one day, one of their offspring would crush Satan, sin, and death. And as the Old Testament unfolds, God begins forming a people for Himself to worship Him and bring Him glory. God made a promise to Abraham to make him into a great nation. And we see that, we see, we see that begin to see the fulfillment of, of that promise to Abraham as his descendants were multiplied in Egypt, though the people were eventually enslaved. In God's kindness, he redeemed and rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, bringing them into the promised land of Canaan. God was willing to rule over his people, but they wanted more. They wanted an earthly king. And so God eventually set up a kingdom. Like Adam and Eve before the fall, Israel was once again God's people in God's place under God's rule, God's king. Again, sadly, the kingdom of Israel ultimately broke apart because the lives of the kings and the people revealed that they had the same problem that Adam had, sin. In language, for example, one of the kings of Israel, King Solomon, he pursued polygamy and the worship of false gods. And in language reminiscent of when Adam and Eve took hold of the forbidden fruit, in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 2, we're told that Solomon clung to, or took hold of, these sins in love. Solomon's sons were too much like their father. They loved their sin. And so Rehoboam and Jeroboam fought for control of their father's throne, which he was ruling over one people of Israel at that time. They fought for control of their father's throne. And the United Kingdom thus became the divided kingdom. The ten northern tribes formed their own kingdom under the rule of Jeroboam. And the southern tribes formed their own kingdom under the rule of Rehoboam. And while there are few bright spots in the history of these two kingdoms, they are mostly filled with dim bulbs. But by the time we get to Amos' ministry, the kingdoms have been divided for well over 150 years. The patterns of idolatry, of sexual immorality, and sin are deeply ingrained in the lives of the people. And a central thrust of Amos' ministry is to warn the people of Israel that just as God thrust Adam and Eve out of His kingdom and realm in the garden, so the people of Israel are in danger of exile, of being thrust out of their kingdom and realm in the land of Canaan. And the irony is, is that the time, by the time we get to the time in Amos' ministry is actually a time that's fairly stable for both kingdoms. By comparison with other kings who reigned, Uzziah and Jeroboam enjoyed lengthy reigns of at least 40 years apiece. During this time, the surrounding superpowers were not so super, and the two kingdoms, they largely left each other alone, and so the period was generally marked by peace. This political context allowed for the two kingdoms to focus on internal building projects, prosperity, and building up their armies. When Amos attempted to warn the northern kingdom of Israel about its impending doom, he was rebuffed. We read about that a little bit earlier. We spoke to Amaziah. Judah and Israel, we come to discover in this book, trusted in horses and chariots, but not in the God who created them and formed them and made them his people. 
Though generally speaking on the surface, everything looked fine during this period. Great even. The reality was is there was a cancer growing deep beneath the surface and the Lord could see it. The time of prosperity was actually a test of prosperity. And the northern kingdom of Israel failed that test miserably. They had money on their minds and trampled each other, especially the poor, to get more. Listen to the words of Amos in chapter 2, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. It makes you wonder, whatever happened to love of neighbor? The people of Israel built lavish luxury homes because everyone needs a summer home, not to mention a winter home. Listen to what Amos said in chapter 3, verse 15. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. What happened to contentment? The people of Israel also perverted justice. Listen to Amos chapter 5, verse 12. For I know how many are your transgressions, and how great are your sins who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Afflict the righteous? Take a bribe? Whatever happened to impartial judgment? Amos is speaking to a prosperous, proud, and perverse people. And to make matters worse, Amos is speaking to a religiously hypocritical people. Listen to Amos chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. And as you listen, remember that these words are dripping with sarcasm as the Lord speaks to His people. Come to Bethel and transgress to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened. And proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them. For so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. Or consider what the Lord says to Israel in Amos chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. The Lord says to His people, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. The people of the northern kingdom of Israel, religiously speaking, are so very far from what David said in Psalm 51, verse 17. The sacrifices that God loves are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. What a ministry the Lord called Amos to. These are the people that He was called to minister to. And with all of these deeply entrenched and ingrained sins and patterns in the people of Israel, it's clear that Amos is speaking to an audience whose hearts were hard. And we're nothing like the people of the northern kingdom of Israel, are we? I mean, we don't struggle with love of money, do we? It's not like... We want a whole lot more money because just a little more will do. You know, we're not infatuated with luxury homes and we're certainly content with the places that the Lord has given us to live, aren't we? We're, we're good citizens too. We don't flout justice, do we? I mean, what Christian really speeds, you know? We, we've never been tempted to pass off blame to our coworker or to someone else for our failure just so that we can kind of be one step ahead in the office in the business world. Last but not least, we're, we're different from the people in the northern kingdom because we're not hypocrites, are we? 
Well, in case you're not accustomed to sarcasm, um, let me be clear. If we're honest with ourselves, we'll admit at the, that at one time or another, in one way or another, to one degree or another, we've struggled with many, if not all, of the same things that the people of Israel struggled with. We may even struggle with some of them now. Let, let me ask you this question. Generally speaking, are you relatively comfortable with where your life is? Do you feel relatively well provided for? Not worried about food or clothing or a place to live. You're not really worried about your job or having a steady stream of income. Taking a look at your life, are you basically comfortable with where you are in life? Do you, do you basically feel secure? Why? Do you feel secure because all of those things are in place in your life? House and food and clothing. Do you feel secure because of those things? Or because God sits on the throne? You know, God stripped Job of all of those things. If God stripped your life of everything, like He did Job, would you be able to say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Do we find safety and security in the things that we have? Do we trust in the good gifts that we have? Or do we trust in the giver of all good gifts? Amos ministered to a people who had fallen in love with good gifts. And those gifts became their first love instead of the God who first loved them. What a challenging ministry Amos, the Lord called Amos to. And we need to recognize that. This is the Lord's calling upon Amos. The Lord is calling Amos to speak for him. And that's really the answer to the third question that we now want to consider this morning. Yes, I've answered the question. I'm going to answer it again. But this is the third question we want to answer this morning. Who is Amos speaking for? Uh, read verses 1 and 2 of Amos chapter 1 again. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn the top of Carmel withers. While verse 1 opens telling us that these are the words of Amos, more fundamentally these are God's words to His people. When we read the words which He saw right there in verse 1, we come to realize that while Amos, that while what Amos will say in this book, it comes out of his mouth, it's from his pen, it did not first originate with him. What Amos saw was a vision imposed upon him by the living and speaking God. The prophecies that we read about in the Old Testament never originate with the prophets themselves. Rather, they always originate with God. And the Apostle Peter confirms this and teaches us about the character of prophecy in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses, 1, verses 20 to 21, where Peter writes, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Prophets are men who are compelled by God to speak, and not just to speak anything that they want, but to speak the words that God gives them. 
Does God still speak today? Yes. Yes, He does. He does so by His Spirit in His Son through His Word, the Bible. And so this should be a great comfort to us and a compelling invitation to read God's Word. Everything that we need for life and godliness, everything that God calls us to is found in God's Word. This is the only place where we can be certain of what God has said. And so shouldn't we open it, read it, and listen to our God? We must be careful to obey what God has said and what can be deduced from good and necessary consequence. We go that far and we go no further. A friend of mine had this to say about God's Word. Those who ignore the Holy Scripture are doomed to stumble into ever-deepening darkness. Those who embrace this Scripture, believe what it promises, and walk by its precepts, will never be without a guide or a light, and they will find their way to their Father's home. That's what we have in God's Word. We have a sure guide into our Father's home. Which is why we should be sure not to deny, ignore, or, or transgress what God has said. The words of Amos are the words that God has composed and compelled him to speak. And as we read and study Amos, we need to keep this in mind. Especially as we consider what Amos says there in verse 2. He says that the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The Lord is not pleased. He is not a kitten purring. purring. He is a lion roaring. He's not a happy lion. He's a hungry lion. He's good, but he's not safe, as C.S. Lewis famously said. And we know what follows in the book, from what follows in the book, that this roaring that Amos mentions is an angry, judgment-infused, perfectly justified, wrath-filled displeasure. And when do lions roar? Well, in chapter 3, verse 4, Amos answers that question with this rhetorical question. In chapter 3, verse 4, Amos says, Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? The answer is no. He roars when he has a prey. And that is a terrifying thought. You know, Amos, he's a shepherd who heard the roar of lions out in the wilderness as he was leading his flock. And he would have surely shuddered at this thought. Because the roar that the people of Israel are about to hear are hard but true words from God. We should be prepared as we study this book over the next several weeks. We will hear the Lord roar and thunder in this book. We are going to hear a cacophony of furious judgment. Which will only be eclipsed, and it will be eclipsed, by a marvelous word of promise and hope at the very end of the book. We know that Amos speaks for the Lord. But what is he saying? This is what we want to think about in our final question. What is Amos saying? What does he mean there in verse 2? That the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. These uh, two ideas, the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers, are complementary ideas. And they're actually meant to actually explain one another. They're in, held in poetic parallel. And these are images that are actually drawn from uh, Amos' previous career as a shepherd. Or, or remember, he was a shepherd and a vine dresser. 
And the word mourn there, it's not, a, frankly, a great translation of the uh, original Hebrew word there. It's not wrong. It's just not its primary meaning. Its primary meaning means to dry up. And some of the older translations actually preserve that meaning a little bit better. What happens when a field dries up? They, they droop over, they bend over, they give the image of, of mourning, kind of bowing down. So they're meant to communicate the same idea. And what the shepherd and vine dresser Amos is seeing here is a poetic picture of the effect of God's judgment. God will roar, He will speak, He will utter His voice, and devastation on the land will follow. These, image, these images convey the idea that God's judgment will send a drought on the lands where shepherds endeavor to lead their sheep. And what happens when sheep do not have a place to graze? They starve. They suffer. The very thought of that shakes every shepherd to the core. As Amos spoke these words, he was no doubt filled with fear and dread. These are words of judgment. And part of what is so striking about them is that Israel's heart was largely hardened to God's word. They assumed that their prosperity meant that they were under God's favor. No doubt they replied to Amos, Look at our houses. Look, look, look at our wealth. Look, look at our might. Look at our worship. How can God be against us? And you know what Amos' response must have been? No, 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 Israel. God sees your houses. He sees your wealth. He sees your might. He sees your worship. And it's precisely the reason that He is coming to judge you. Do not mistake your prosperity as a sign of God's favor. For your sinful indulgence will be the catalyst for His judgment. All seems so very bleak here, the outset of the book of Amos. Is there any hope that we can derive from these first two verses in the book? Even verses about judgment. In fact, there is hope that we can derive from the first few verses of this book. Even verses about judgment. Hope can and should be found in the mere fact that God is speaking. The shepherd of Israel has sent a shepherd to deliver a message to his people. Yes, it is a message of impending judgment, but we must realize that any hope of mercy from God inevitably comes in the context of judgment. Over and over again in the Bible, God displays His mercy in the context of judgment, even through judgment. Remember Adam and Eve? God was explaining His judgment for their sin. He was casting them out of the garden. And what did He say in the midst of His judgment? He said in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It's a promise of the Messiah. It's a promise of salvation. In the midst of judgment, God speaking words of judgment to Adam and Eve, He's promising mercy. Mercy in the midst of judgment. Remember the Exodus. Was Israel's departure from slavery in Egypt a happy, clappy one? Or was it filled with terrifying judgment? The angel of the Lord slaughtered all of the firstborn sons of Egypt so that Israel would receive mercy and go free. Mercy in the midst of judgment. Salvation in the midst of judgment. And what about Rahab? When the people of Israel were going in to conquer the promised land. 
Wasn't she spared of God's judgment when everyone else in Jericho died by the hand of the sword? Mercy in the midst of judgment. And we could go on and on and on with examples in the Bible about mercy seen in the context of judgment. Amos is filled with eight and a half chapters of deafening judgment. And then at the end of the book, what does the Lord say? He says, I'm going to raise up the booth of David. I'm going to preserve a remnant. And I'm going to call Gentiles to come and to worship me. Those are precious, merciful words. In the, mix, in the midst of judgment. Words of judgment. And how did God fulfill that promise of mercy? He did it through judgment. His Son, Jesus Christ, the eternal Word of God became flesh. He lived the life that none of us have lived, the life of perfect obedience to God. Where we have been sinful, Jesus was sinless. He called Himself the Good Shepherd. And He walked this earth, exercising the office of a prophet, teaching the truth about God and His Word. And though He was perfectly sinless, He went to the cross and took upon Himself what? The judgment, the sins, and the punishment due to the sins of all of those who would ever turn from their sins and place their faith in Him. Jesus died under the judgment of God so that sinners like you and me might know mercy from God. And three days after His death, God raised Jesus from the dead, proving to us all that God's judgment has been carried out and justice satisfied. And Jesus now invites us to know the mercy and favor of God. He calls us to escape His judgment and believe that Jesus was judged for us. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, then I want to invite you to come to Jesus Christ in faith today. You need Him. Because you need mercy from God. You and I are just like the ancient people of Israel. We have disregarded and disobeyed God's word. And we are in danger of facing His just judgment. But the good news is that we can escape God's judgment through faith in Jesus Christ. And that is how we receive God's mercy. So friend, turn from your sins. Come to Jesus Christ in faith today. And if you want to know more about what that means to receive mercy than God, then I'd love to talk with you about that after the service. I'll be back there at the door. I'd love to speak with you about that good news, that we can receive mercy because Jesus was judged for us. Well, we should conclude. Amos was a humble and obedient shepherd that the Lord was pleased to use in his service. God commissioned him to speak, speak words, hard but true words to the people of Israel. He was commissioned to speak words of judgment so that the people of Israel might turn from their sin and turn to the living God and find mercy. It was a mercy of God even to send Amos to the people of Israel. And while Amos preached judgment, he also preached mercy. And the very act of God sending Amos to the people of Israel to speak to them should have proved to them that God had not forsaken them and that He would continue to pursue them with His unfailing love. Brothers and sisters, God has placed His Word into your hands, into my hands, so that you would hear your Heavenly Father's voice. That's why He's given you His Word. Because He wants you to hear His voice. As one church historian has observed, 
No other book in the world shows God's singular care and providence. Only the Scriptures. God has preserved them for you. God calls you to listen to His Word. And He has gone through a great deal in order to preserve it for you to read and mark and learn. Through Amos, God called the ancient people of Israel to listen to His voice. And today, God calls us to listen to His Word too in the Bible. God has spoken. And it's the very reason that we're all here today. Let's listen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are amazed and grateful at your sovereign mercy toward us. Your speaking your word is undeserved. And yet you have kindly, you, the, the holy God, would speak to sinful people like us. Lord, what a wonderful mercy from you. And Lord, most of all, we give you thanks for speaking the precious word of your Son, sending him to live for us and to die for us. Well, Lord, we know that you love us because you have spoken in your word and in Christ. And we pray and ask that you'd help us to listen and hear your gracious and merciful words of love. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Friends, brothers and sisters, our next song is entitled...